good to be together. Uh, but this is, this is our final morning this morning, going through this series on Ecclesiastes' journey and through this wonderful book. And I just want to thank you for the feedback. Uh, thank you for the encouragement that we've had during the series. It's not been easy, has it? Please don't be quiet this morning. It's not been easy, has it? It's not been an easy thing. As we've been going through these weeks, we've been traveling with this main voice of this book, Coalef. Again, as I, I said the first week, Coalef is not really a name. It's a title. It means the, t- the preacher or the teacher. And he's been wrestling on this journey for meaning, uh, this journey for delving into the human condition and what is the point of life? Why are we here? Is there a reason for existence? Are we here for any purpose other than just to spend our days doing whatever we want. And he has, as we've traveled through, we've seen he has a lot of hang-ups. He has a lot of frustrations. He observes the suffering in the world. He feels the misery of life. He feels the weight of the problems around him. He senses the unfairness and the sense that things don't go as they are planned. And yet at the same time, on his other hand, he knows there's a God. He's not too keen on God. He has his hang-ups with God as well. And he knows there's things to enjoy in life, even though life is brief. And so Koalef is a, he's a person of faith. He has a faith, he has an honest faith, and at the same time he's full of contradictions and he's full of internal tensions, just like all of us. We're all full of contradictions. And you might think to yourself, no I'm not. Yes you are. We all are on some level. And so it's good that we have Coelef's words that he gives voice in this raw and honest way, gives voice with his open gaze of life and how confusing life can be and this world can be. And he doesn't try and sugarcoat it. And he doesn't try and soften it up in these nice little simplistic platitudes. He's just raw and he's just honest. And his words resonate, but his words also sting. Because he cuts close to the bone sometimes, doesn't he? In what we're going to read today in in these final words in Ecclesiastes, we're going to be told that these words are like a shepherd's goad. They are like a cattle prod, which isn't a very comforting thing, is it, to be hit with a cattle prod? A pointy stick that jabs us and makes us go, Ouch! That was a bit close to the bone, and his words are very close to the bone. So if you've ever cringed through this series, if you've ever felt uncomfortable as we've traveled through Coalef's direct and raw, honest words, well, that's the effect he wanted his words to have. He wants us to admit to ourselves, and he wants us to be honest, he wants us to feel the inner rumblings and the contradictions and the anxieties, and the turmoil that we often attempt to gloss over and bury, not only from everyone else, but even from ourselves. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to be honest. And as we go for his words today, as we finish off in this passage today, as we go for chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes together and chapter 12, the two very brief passages, as we go for his final words, we're going to hear more of his inner conflict. We're going to feel more of the sharp end of his observations, and they're not going to be comfortable We're going to groan once again with his preoccupation with death. Sorry about that, I'll warn you now. We're going to groan again. And we're also going to appreciate, I'm sure, as we nod and think, yeah, that's wise. That's wise what he's saying. But I want you to notice, as we go through these words, Koalef's voice isn't the only voice that we're going to encounter today. When we get into chapter 12 and verse 8, when Koalef stops his rambling, we're going to jump once again back to the voice of the narrator of this book, who introduced this book to us right at the very start. And it's the narrator who's going to give his own conclusion to everything that we have read. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I was a bit torn about which translation to read this in this morning because different translations uh, translate a lot of this very different because it's very poetical what we're going to read this morning. Uh, But I'm going to read from the NLT. Writes this, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. 
Send your grain across the waters, and in time, profits will flow back to you. But divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lay ahead. When clouds are heavy, the rains come down. When a tree falls, whether it's north or south, it stays where it falls. And farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. And if they watch every cloud, they will never harvest. And just as you can never understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. Light is sweet. How pleasant it is to see a new day dawning. And when people live to be a very, very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. But let them also remember that there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Young people, it is wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. Don't let the excitement of your youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun and the moon and the stars is dim in your old eyes and the rain clouds continually darken your skies. Before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble and before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth of too few, your few remaining servants stop grinding and before your eyes, the women looking through the window see dimly. Before your door of life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. And now you rise at the first chirping of birds, but then all the sounds grow faint. Before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets. Before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom. And you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper. And the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Before you need a grave, your everlasting home, and when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, before you are, remember you're creating now, you are young before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well, for then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And then we jump back into the words of the narrator. Everything is meaningless, said the teacher, completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise and he taught people everything he knew and he listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. And the teacher sought just to find the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. The collected signs are like a nail-studded stick which a shepherd drives to their sheep. But, my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for the writing of books is endless and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty, and God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Sting those words, don't they? They sting a little bit, don't they? I turned 43 last weekend. I turned 43, and neither of my lads got me a birthday present. Not saying not to publicly shame them, but a, a bit of chocolate would have been nice. A bit of chocolate would have been nice. Uh, they did, at some point, various times during the week. I remember one point when I was complaining about my knees. 
At one point when I claimed, I made a groan when I was sitting down. And on two separate occasions, both my lads, not being in the same room at the same time, turned around to me and said, ha, you're old. Which is nice, which is nice. And I don't know what it is. I know I'm not getting younger. I know I'm not getting younger. But what it is, when you, when you, when you have a tendency to forget, because some people think you're going to forget, you're not getting any younger. And so when it's your birthday, people send you birthday cards that purposely remind you that you're getting older. Thanks for that. And so this past week, I got a, a particular card from a particular friend, in the commas now, because I'm not sure what to do with the card. And it was a beautiful card, and on the card it said this, you know you're getting older when, that's how it starts, you know it's going to be good, doesn't it? You know you're getting older when everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You feel like the morning after, the morning before. Your knees buckle, but your belt won't. It's very true, that one. You can only burn the midnight oil to nine o'clock. That's optimistic. It's eight o'clock now for me. It's eight o'clock. The twinkle in your eyes is the sun hitting your bifocals. Your back goes out more often than you do. And another way to know you're getting older is the cards like this start showing up through your door. Happy birthday. That's, that's great, isn't it? That's great. I don't, I know, I know, none of us are getting any younger, are we? And we don't need reminding of that fact, do we? Uh, but when we are reminded, it is nice when someone does it with a little bit of humor. It is good. I don't know what it is. We're just as British. I don't know. But we like a bit of humor. It softens the blow. We help it. We laugh at it. We chuckle at it. And it's nice. When you get a poem like on the front of my card, it really helps. Now, thankfully, Koalef, thankfully, never, ever wrote any birthday cards and he never wrote any messages for birthday cards. And I don't think he would have lasted long if he ever worked for a birthday greetings card company like Hallmark. I think he would have been sacked on the first day. And the reason I'm saying that is because when we get into the beginning of chapter 12, all the way from verse 1 of chapter 12 to verse 7, Koalet's final words to us are a poem. He gives us some poetry. And it's a poem about getting old and then dying. It's nice, isn't it? That's really cheerful. And like most poems, it's very rich in its symbols. It's very rich in its metaphors. And different Bible translators, in seeking to help us out, well, they'll, they'll help us and they'll make the metaphor more clearer when you try and translate it from the Hebrew into English. And there's different ideas about what these symbols are referencing, whether it's the poem is an allegory about our body parts starting to whir out as we get old, or whether it's describing the actual pattern of an ancient funeral, or whether it's about a deteriorating household that's suddenly battered by a ravaging storm. But even though the symbols are a little confusing, the message they paint isn't. So whether it's our body parts wearing out, or age hitting us like a storm and ravaging us, or whether it's our inevitable journey to the grave, Koalef is saying that at some point in life, you will fall apart. That's the good news message this morning that you can take home and rejoice in. And he's not funny, is he? He's not funny. I'd love a little phrase in this like, that would say, like, your belt buckles, sorry, and your knees buckle and your belt stone. I'd like a little bit of humor, but he's not funny at all, is he? He's dry. He's really dry. And not only is he dry and he's not any humor, he lacks subtlety. He just hits us with it. And not only does he hit it with us, he doesn't just hit it with us once, but he goes on and on and throws picture at us after picture after us, and picture after us, light will dim in your eyes, he says. The clouds will darken your skies. Yeah, we know, we know what you're getting at. We nod. 
because we're patient with him at this point, and then your legs will fail, and your teeth will fall out, and your hair turns white, and your libido fizzles out. Well, well, thanks for that. Thanks for that call. If you're getting a little bit close to the bone, you know, you know. And then he goes on, and then mourners will start to gather around your graveside. Well, that was a quick jump. That was a quick jump. He just suddenly went from life fizzling out to the graveside. And, all right, stop it now, Cole, if you've said enough. And then the silver cord snaps. And the golden candle bowl that is holding out. Well, that'll smash on the floor when it hits the floor and your life will shatter. Well, that's really delicately put in it, isn't it? When the lights go out, that's really putting it. You've made your point. Now, I think you should stop now, Cole. And then the jar smashes, he goes on. And you can't get water from the well anymore because the pulley breaks and everything that feeds your life suddenly dries up. And you kind of like, you want to say to him, shut up. Shut up, Coel, if you touch the bone. And then he doesn't stop, does he? And then the dust will go back to the ground. And your breath will go back to God who gave it. Happy birthday. He's not a happy bloke, is he? He's really, I don't know about you, but that's not sensitively handling it, is it? I mean, if that, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to ask the doctors in the room like Rachel or Olivia, but that wouldn't be a bedside manner as your doctor, would it, if you were dealing with someone who was ill and unwell. That's, he's just not subtle with it. He's not subtle with it at all. And he's not because he's not been subtle with anything, has he? And when he says this dust goes back to the ground, the breath goes back to God, well, as I've said in previous weeks, he's saying that because Koalef's not optimistic about this idea of life after death. And what he's describing is, is a reversal of our creation. He's a, a reversal of this... Genesis 2 story that we'll be on, where we know. This is humanity's uncreation. He's not describing afterlife, but pre-life. And as I've said before, he's doing this because as far as he considers, death is just the ultimate end. And it's why he considers everything to be absolutely meaningless. Because once we die, that's it, we're done. Everything is over. And he's wrong, as we've looked at in previous weeks. He's long wrong about that. And especially as we consider that Easter weekend, the hope of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' own defeat of death. We know that death is not the end. And so I'm not going to focus on that too much this morning. But I think, even though he lacks tact and he lacks humor, I think Koalek gets his point across pretty well, doesn't he? He gets it. He wears us down. He wears us down. He purposely tires us out with his poem. He makes us feel fed up. Or is it just me? He makes us feel fed up. And that's the goal of good poetry. That's what good poetry does. I'm not saying good poetry makes you feel fed up. I'm saying good poetry, it doesn't provide us with information about something. Good poetry wants us to sense something. It wants us to feel something. And Koalev uses poetry because he wants us to taste old age. He wants us to taste this no matter how old we are. And maybe it's just me, but I feel old when I read his words in chapter 12. I feel old. So old that my birthday card, after I prepped the sermon this week, after doing this, looking at my birthday card again, I wanted to rip it up and put it in a bin. It wasn't funny anymore. And I guarantee you, if I read my birthday card to you now, after reading Koalef's words to you, I don't think you would find it as funny anymore either. Now, of course, he's doing this for a reason. The reason he's so, I'm going to say, glum <laughs> in chapter 12 it's because he wants to provide a motivation for what he said in chapter 11. And if we wanted to summarize chapter 11, we could simply use the words, don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. And throughout his book, throughout this whole rant that he's been going on for 11 chapters, Koalef has been constantly saying that life is uncertain, 
that life is unpredictable, that there are no guarantees, no matter how good or wise you are, that there's no, there's no times, there's times when you things that will not make sense will happen, and things that will do make sense don't happen, and there's things that we can't control, and there's things we just can't figure out. And he's saying the same thing, he's summing it all up at the beginning of chapter 11. Life is uncertain, there's no guarantees. But he doesn't want us, on the receiving end of that message, he doesn't want us to be paralyzed with worry because of that, or fear because of that, or anxiety. He wants us to live. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to live, which might seem odd, seeing that he thinks life is pointless anyway. It might seem odd, especially after what he says in chapter 4, he says he'd rather be dead. It might seem really odd after we've touched on a lot of his words, but Coalef's a complex, muddled person, like all of us. We're muddled. I don't know about you, but I hold contrary opinions in my head. I know life's worth living, but there's still mornings I wake up and I question that and the circumstances go through. And so even though he's skeptical towards life, he's not saying be inactive. He's not saying don't do anything. As he sees it, life is momentary, so don't waste it. Use what little there is. He says, Dunny, in verse 7 of chapter 11, enjoy the sweetness of the light. Because there's a lot of darkness ahead of you. Don't wait for perfect conditions before you do something. As far as he sees it, that's a waste of time that he can't afford. It's a waste. If you're waiting for perfect days and you're watching the clouds and you're often rains, then you're using this farming metaphor. You'll never plant, you'll never harvest, you'll never do anything if you're waiting for perfect conditions. Keep busy, he encourages us. Invest yourself in projects, in people, in activity. Don't be lazy. Don't be arrogant. Don't be foolish. That's his whole message from verses 1 to 6. Don't waste your breath and your health on anger and worries and grudges. Banish irritation from your heart is what he says in verse 10. Don't give your life to stuff that doesn't deserve your life. Don't. Simply put, make the most of your life while you've got it. He's certainly not one of those people who would be happy if you turned around to him and said, I'll get around to that one day. Because we say that a lot, don't we? He would say, you don't know if you've got that one day. Do it. Do it now. And when you get round to it, you might realize that what you've got left isn't worth getting round to anymore. Don't waste what you've got. And although I disagree with Coalef and his idea that life is meaningless, because it's not, and we'll come back to that, I still think that's great advice. That is good advice, isn't it? Use your time. He's right. He's absolutely right to remind us, as he has done, that there's many uncertainties. There's many things we can't control in life. The problem is we often live, as as sometimes, we often live trying to limit those uncertainties and trying to control things we can't control. And so we often live as if we're trying to avoid risks or we're overcautious or we wait for perfect conditions. And so we become stagnant in life, waiting for things to fall into place as we would want them before we do anything. Or worse, worse than that, because of the problems we've encountered, because of the pain we've experienced, because of the failures and the disappointments, we end up just closing doors and everything and never doing anything ever again. I'm not doing that again. And so we cease to live and we just exist. And that's not good, is it? That's not good. See, it's wise to be careful It's wise to think before you act and before you speak. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like the man in Jesus' parable who takes his bag of gold and buries it in the ground. I want to do something with what I've 
got and what I have been given. And so when I read Coalette's final appeal to us, I'm reminded of another poem by an American writer called Jack London. He writes this, I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy permanent planet. The function of man is to live, not exist. And so I shall not waste my time trying to prolong them. I will use my time. That's good advice, isn't it? I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather burn out than die or be stifled by dry rot. And so whether it's a shared meal with friends, whether a romantic meal with candlesticks, whether it's a well-brewed cup of tea or a tasty chow mein pot noodle, whatever it is, live each moment to its deepest core. That's Koalef's advice. That's good advice. Having said that, his closing statement still not the best, is it? His point still is a very disappointing end at the end of his lengthy, long rant that he's been going on. And he's been in this lengthy search. And even though he's been through this lengthy search over 11 chapters, he still hasn't really left us with any answers, has he? Kolev's not left us with any answers. Even though he's gone through this and he's left us with his final motivational speech at the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12, he still thinks everything is utterly meaningless. He still feels humanity has no real purpose. He still thinks existence is like a shallow breath, a vapor. And he never really resolves any of the problems and the tensions and the issues that he's dragged us through, which he has. He's dragged us through over 11 chapters. He's goaded us. He's prodded us with a pointy stick. He's cut us open. He's exposed our anxieties like a raw nerve. And then he just leaves us. Live your life. And he just walks off. His last advice is it's better to go up in flames than to crumble to pieces. But that doesn't really bandage up any of these wounds he's left us with, does it? I still find myself bleeding out, wondering if this was the only bit of writing I had in life. I'd be wondering, if the, is there a point to it all? You'd not really answer it. And if there's, if there's not, then what's my response to that? But if there is still a point, even in, the, even in the midst of everything that's going on, what should be my response to everything that's going on around me? You've not helped me, Cole. You've not helped me at all. And so thankfully, his words aren't the words we finish with. He isn't the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I've said this a number of times for this series. It's really important we grasp this. But Coalef, the teacher... His words are not the only words in our conversation of faith. If they were, if that was the good news that life is utterly meaningless, I know I wouldn't be here this morning, and I doubt many of us would. And so we must listen to Coalef's rant as a part of Scripture as a whole, and especially we must read him in light of Jesus. But even within the book of Ecclesiastes, Coalef's just a part of the conversation. His point is not the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Though he says some good things and he says some troubling things, his point is not the point. And so at verse 8 of chapter 12, we come back to the narrator. And we discover that it seems, the narrator seems to be in a discussion with his child or his student about Coalef's words. 
And in the verse 8, the narrator quotes like he did at the very start of this book. Koalef spin on it all. The Koalef says it's utterly meaningless. But the narrator doesn't end it there. He doesn't end it with Koalef's conclusion. It's as if the narrator turns around to his child or his student and he says, Koalef was wise, listen to him carefully, learn from him, but, and there's a warning in this final word, this is not all there is to hear. Koalef's words, as wise as they are, are not the final words on existence. They are not the final words in existence. And it's crucial we grasp this, because these last few verses, and I can't spend as much time as I'd like to this morning, they deserve far more time, but they guide us in what to do with the whole of Koalef's rant. And yet it seems unbalanced, doesn't it? Koalef's had 214 verses where he's ranted and rambled and raved. And the narrator in the last eight verses sums it all up and provides a response And it seems in comparison, these small eight verses are so small and feeble and a bit of an anticlimax and compared to all these verses, it's almost like David facing Goliath, but actually in the same way, even though they are tiny, even though summary is small and brief, actually it's very powerful. The narrator turns to his child and says, we've heard it all. You've heard everything. You've heard of all of Koalef's argument. And so here's the end of the matter. Here's the final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. Here's the final word after all his ranting and raving and rambling. Fear God and obey his commands. Or to put that advice a different way, worship God and walk with God. That's the end of the matter. Worship God and walk with God. And again, in comparison, it might seem rather flimsy. Does, doesn't it? Tiny. But in one sentence, the narrator gives us both the purpose of humanity and also our response to how confusing life can be. See, the narrator says to worship God and to walk with God is the whole duty of man. The all of man is in the Hebrew. The all of who we are. And in a way, he just summarizes the whole of the Torah. In a famous prayer that Israel had, one of their founding prayers in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, what is the purpose of humanity? To know God and to embody God. Is there a point to life? Yes. To know God and embody God. To be loved by God and to show the love of God. It's that simple. That is the purpose of life. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Or you wanted to hear that question a different way. What's the best thing I can do with my humanity? What is the point of me? Why are we here? Well, his response was the same thing. He did the same summary of the Torah. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Why am I here? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Life is not meaningless. Thank God. Life is not vapor. Your life is to be a vessel for divine glory and divine love and divine honor. That's good news, isn't it? You are not wasted clay. You are not just dust. Even if you go out in ashes, there's more to it than just that. But the narrator not just challenges his Koalef's bleak outlook. He also gives his child some practice in the midst of that bleak outlook. And I want you to notice something. The narrator doesn't spend, thankfully, otherwise the series would be even longer. 
But he doesn't spend a further 214 verses challenging Kolev's observations, does he? He doesn't do that in resolving his tensions. He doesn't because he knows Kolev is right in what he has seen and what he has felt. In the real world, our faith, like Kolev's, is caught up in a tension, a collision between what should be and what is. We know God is sovereign. We know there's a God. We worship him. We follow him. At the same time, we look at life, even our own life, and we think it's an absolute mess. It's in the right state. Things don't go as they should. And in all of us, on one level or another, there is this tension, this struggle to hold these two things together. What we know of life, what we experience, and what we know of God. And life or our current experience, of, if, if we're perfectly honest, our current experience of life, well, it's full of dark and it's full of light, isn't it? It's full of good and it's full of bad. Some days it feels more full of bad than it does of good. But it does. It's full of pain and it's full of pleasure. We see furnace, but we also experience a lot of unfurnace. We notice things that make sense. But there's a lot of things that baffle us, even when we've done the right thing and we've followed the right rules and we've done the right thing that even our local governments have asked us to do. And it doesn't make sense. Things just don't come together as we have planned. And the truth is, if you're trying to live a life of faith that's trying to remove those tensions, you will not do it. You cannot do it. That is not the call of your life to remove the tensions in your life. That's not what faith is about. Faith is not about easy, simple answers. It's not what it's about. You could spend, like Kohlef, chapters talking about it, exploring it, writing book upon book upon book upon book, trying to understand those. It's not your job to resolve the tensions. The challenge is how do we somehow live as people of faith in the midst of those tensions? When life doesn't come together, where do I put my feet? That's the question. Life is disorientating. That's honest Christianity. Any Christianity that tries to sell you a sales pitch that everything's going to be great and perfect and awesome is a lie. God is great and perfect and awesome. Life is hard work. Life is uncertain. Life does have limits. I do have frailties. My knees are starting to buckle more than my belt does. I do feel those things. And real honest faith, we're honest. And I'm tired of a faith that kind of tries to tidy it up. And we've never tried that here, but I, I just hear other voices trying to tidy it up too neatly. But real faith, if we're honest, carries questions and not just declarations. Real faith carries disappointments and not just testimonies. Real faith wants to give God a piece of our mind at the same time as giving him our praise. Just like the psalmists do so often. We start off well and then have a rant and then finish, yet I will praise. Then they say it so bluntly. And often in my own life, like, like the disciples, as Luke describes them in chapter 24, as they stand before the resurrected Jesus, I find myself worshipping, filled with doubt and joy and wonder all at the same time. Because things don't make sense, do they? Can we just be honest? Real faith is not everything is awesome. Because it's not. God is. But everything is certainly not awesome. Real faith is not superstition. Because superstition says if I avoid the cracks, if I avoid the ladders, if I step here and don't step there, life turns out perfectly. That's not faith. That's superstition. 
See, faith looks the reality of earthly life in its face and says, yes, and yet I will trust God through it. Real faith is not a denial of the way things are. See, the narrator knows Koalef's feelings are legitimate. They are the feelings of any Israelite who follows God in the Old Testament. They are the feelings of any disciple who follows Jesus in the New. And anyone who aims to follow God, well, the truth is you will feel like this at some point most days. There's not a single person here I know that I've spoken in private conversation that has not had tensions and wrestles with God. We all do. The question is, when life is murky, when life is messy, what do we do? And so the, the narrator here doesn't just give his child or his student the purpose of humanity. He gives him a practice. He sets before the child a tried and tested formula of worship and putting one foot in front of the other. That's it. How do you get through the mess and the murk? You worship and you keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's it. That's still our mandate as followers of Jesus. It's no different. Jesus didn't come with a message that said, if you follow me, everything will fall into place. It will all make sense. It will be easy. Everything happen will exactly as you expect it to happen and the results will be as expected. you expected the results. His challenge to us was nothing like that. His challenge was an invitation to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. See, in the light of all attentions, in the light of all the unanswered questions, and you have them, in the light of all the pain and the joy, and you have them, in the light of all the disorientation and the confusion you feel on a, fa- on a daily basis, the response of the narrator and the challenge of Jesus puts before us is keep having, a fa- keep having a faith that worships and a faith that walks. That's it. Do you want to know the secret of this life of faith? That's it. And it sounds like shoddy advice. But I can tell you from personal experience, it's the only thing that's ever worked. I've been following Christ for 25 years, and on a daily basis, I have highs and lows. There's mornings I wake up, my mental health is wrecked. And if I listen to my mental health and I follow the advice of my mental health, my footsteps stumble and I fall and I tumble. But if I look to Christ and I say, I'm just going to worship you and I'm going to walk with you, I get through it. It's not like the cloud disappears, the cloud's still there, but like we were reminded this morning by Deb, the sun is still shining above the clouds, and I'll trust in that. It's not intellectual answers. Often we think when I hit walls in faith, if I had all the intellectual answers, if I could understand it, if I knew the complexity of it, and I could answer it in a very easy way, I would follow and it would be easy. No, it won't. It won't. You can have all the intellectual answers. I love to study I'm certainly not anti-intellectual. I love to study. I think it's a great thing. I think it's the best thing ever. I could have my head in a book all day. But the problem with, with answers is they just lead to more questions. And more study leads to more study. And that's good. But it will not sustain you when you're going through the difficulty things in life. It just won't. What will is worship and walking. It will. It's not miracles. I often think if I saw the miracle I wanted to see that I'm praying for, if God made it come to pass, then I would follow. I would have a faith that mountains would move and a faith that would be unshakable. No, you won't. You would not. Because there's times when I've encountered miracles and all it does is raise the question, well, why did I get the green light then when I prayed? But my dad still died on ICU. 
We think if we got the miracles, it would resolve all things. Well, the Old Testament Israelite population had loads of miracles. And they still walked out on God. Jesus performed loads of miracles. And then when he actually challenges people to follow him, they walk away. We're not interested in that. They still said, crucify him. Miracles aren't it. They're good. I want more of them. Don't get me wrong. But if you think miracles would solidify your faith, the truth is, it won't. You'll find another reason not to believe. There'll be something that will go unanswered and it'll cause you a problem. You'll have these tensions every day. Whether you've seen the greatest miracles ever and you've seen Christ raise the dead. And I've known people who've seen Christ raise the dead and they're not following Christ anymore. Because the truth is, when we go through the tough times and the storms, there's only one thing that works. To have a faith that worships and a faith that walks. Just perseverance. Carrying on. Or as Winston Churchill put it, he had a way of putting a, a phrase, didn't he? He said, if you're going through hell, keep going. That's it. Just keep going. I'm going to say worship. I'm not on about singing, although it can be that or it can be reading. I'm just saying getting out of yourself, getting out of your view of life and just having a moment or two or a constant reminder that God is bigger than all that we are seeing and God is richer than all that we are seeing. There's no other answer. For 25 years, the only thing that's kept me following Christ is the fact that I'm just persisting to humbly walk with God and admitting that I don't know it all, that I am confused, I'm a wreck most days, but God, I'm just going to trust and I'm going to continue. And I know from this room, it's not just me. I know from the conversations I've had Pam, sorry Pam to highlight you, it's what kept Pam going and still keeps Pam going. Doesn't it, Pam? I know when I've chatted to Olivier, uh, I know when I've chatted to Roger about some of the things he's seen as well in his own country, the things that they've seen that is absolutely horrific the reason they're sat there today is because they just keep worshipping and keep walking. And it sees them through. I know Val's been through some tough, tough times. I said tough times, then tough times, not tough times. Life does feel like tough times. And while she kept her going, continuing to use her gifts for God, but continue to give her life to God, it's just worship and walking. There are many of us here who have seen some miraculous things. We've seen the Spirit move in powerful ways. And we've seen our children walk away from faith and we're still perplexed by it all. Sorry to bring you into this, Nin. But why does Nin keep following Christ? Because she has the answers to it. No. She just keeps walking and she keeps worshipping. And the truth is, that's the only tried and trusted formula that is. Keep worshipping. Keep going. And in the midst of all the perplexity, I think that's the best answer there is. Koalef's answer is rubbish. That answer is the only one that will see you through. And it's not that God is after unquestioning loyalty. Don't misunderstand me. God is saying, follow me even with the questions. I can handle it. He's God, after all, isn't he? And if you can't handle it, I've got to really ask his qualification if he can. But God can handle it. See, it's adoring God in the wounds and with the wounds. And through the wounds, because that's all I can do, and all that God has to work with, and God's fine with that. God's fine with that. It's often us who aren't. We have to be thinking, we have to be in some other state for God to work. God doesn't. He's fine with that. See, myself and you, 
We're made to be vessels for divine glory and divine love. And I don't know about you, but I'm in no great shape. To use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, I'm just a jar of clay. I'm pretty fragile. I'm pretty shaky. And I've got a few cracks. If you ask Steph, I've probably got a lot more cracks. But I've got a few cracks. But as Paul reminds us, God's fine with that. God dwells in that, and God's glorious light shines in that. And as Paul says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, we are confused, we are dazzled, we are baffled, but we're not driven to despair. We are hunted down, and life just seems to be just chasing us and killing us, but God has never abandoned us. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. That's really encouraging words, isn't it? And through our suffering, and this is the perplexing bit, through our suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen. Keep going. That's the end of the matter. That's the conclusion to it all of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't make sense. Keep going. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Life's not easy. And we know you're not to blame for it. In fact, as we're constantly reading the Psalms, you are our firm foundation. You are our shield, tower of refuge. Someone who is ever dependable. And as we always remember, your unfailing love endures forever. And yet as your love feels unfailing, sometimes the problems in life just seem unceasing. And we go from one storm to another storm to another storm. And I thank you, Lord God, that you are with us in the midst of it all. And whether you speak and calm the waves or whether you don't, may we just learn to abide in you, to sit with you, to enjoy you, to know that you are with us, that you are in us, and we are in you. And that, Lord Jesus, you are unshaken and you are ever-present. May we just learn to trust in you. And we know that's an easy thing to say. And it's a dangerous prayer to say, Lord God, because it's not an easy thing to do. And it means going through many dangers. But through it all, through it all, Lord God, may we continue to worship you, adore you, be in awe of you. And though we mess up so many times and get our footwork wrong, may we continue to put one foot in front of the other, just to put that trust in you, and that love we know of you into practice. Help us, Lord God. We come under your wing. We come under your guidance. Lead us. And help us, we will. In Jesus' name.